0: Man, open your Bibles to Romans chapter twelve. Now, don't raise your hand. I want to ask you a question. I've preached at churches before where, like, I ask a question, I didn't intend a response, and like people raising their hand. This is just to think about. You ever, you ever doubt whether God loves you? Do you ever doubt whether you're a Christian? I was a youth pastor for a lot of years, and I'd have students come up to me and say, I'm just really struggling whether I'm a believer or not. And as a youth pastor, I have to confess, my first thought was, I just preached on that three weeks ago. Where were you? And it wasn't that they weren't in the crowd. It's that they weren't thinking these thoughts three weeks ago. And I know what it means. I've been there where you just really don't feel it. You wake up some days and you think, I don't think God loves me. And so when students approach me, when, adult, when adults approach me, I kind of take them back to the old, if you remember the old four spiritual laws, little train in the back. What's pulling your train? Is it facts? Is it faith or is it feelings? And too often our Christian life is run too much by how we feel and not enough by really what the facts are and where our faith has been placed. And so I take them to places like Romans where I talk through Talking through the book of Romans and just a couple weeks ago we were in chapter 10 where it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say you can hope so. It doesn't say you got a 50-50 chance. It doesn't say it's going to come down to some great coin toss before God. You can know that you have eternal life. John, writing 1 John chapter 5, he says, I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. So the first thing I do with folks who are struggling with their faith is I take them through the facts. Well, have you ever trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? And then I ask them the next thing. Have you ever seen any evidence that you are a child of God? Because, folks, if you're a believer, if you've come to faith in Christ, He has begun a work in you. He promised to do it. You will see change take place in your life you will see the fruit of the Spirit becoming more and more evident in your life. Last week we looked at the first part of this chapter where we kind of turned a corner from a lot of... The first 11 chapters of Romans are really heavy theology, and there's still some practical stuff there. But from 12 to 16 becomes just a lot more just really practical things. Last week we looked at Paul saying, Hey, Don't become conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. A change has taken place. Elsewhere, in another book, Paul says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. You can forget that stuff because God has forgotten it. And I've mentioned this before, but the t-shirt I like that says, the next time the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. So then we get to this passage where Paul just gets real practical. Verse 9, the title of the message is Life with a Renewed Mind. How do you know, how can you see, what are the evidences in your life that your mind has begun to be renewed? Now listen, I want to, I want to do a disclaimer up front. If you leave here today with 25 things on a list and you're thinking, all right, I got to try harder. I'm going to have to do better. i got, all right, I got 25 new things that I've got to do. And you kind of leave here in the uh, mode. Then you miss the point. You cannot do this apart from Christ. That's what the first 11 chapters have been all about. The law has pointed out how desperately we needed a Savior. And it's by grace that you're saved, not by your uh. God's not impressed with that. Here, here's what God's impressed with, a broken and contrite heart heart that comes before him and say God I can't do it and that's when God flexes holy muscles and that's when you begin to see these things become more and more evident in your life let me read verses 9 and following just for the first part through verse 13 let love be without hypocrisy abhor what is evil cling to what is good be devoted to one another in brotherly love give Preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. Paul begins to unpack for us how to put some feet to our faith. In other words, if your life is really changed, you ought to see this taking place. A 19th century Englishman, Robert C. Chapman, wrote, Seeing that so many preach Christ and so few live Christ, I will aim to live him. That's what he wrote in his journal. A preacher wrote this about Robert Chapman, saying of him, he lives what I teach. Folks will often say that a whole lot rather see a sermon than hear one. And actions speak louder than words. So Paul then gets to this point in his teaching where he's taught about don't be conformed. Don't get pressed into this world's system and this world's mold, but be transformed. Something's taking place in your mind. You're becoming renewed. You're thinking differently. In fact, what Paul is about to tell them is totally different than the world system that they were living in. And let me tell you, it's totally different than the world system we're living in. First thing he says is love without hypocrisy. By the way, I love both songs that Tangina sang. The first one that you struggle with, you know, or you thought you were going to struggle with because it wasn't what you planned. I just love the last line of that song. Basically said, I am what I am or I am who I am now. This is who you are now. So with that in mind, let love be without hypocrisy. The word love in Scripture is not, is not the kind of love The word he uses here is not brotherly love. Later on he's going to use that. But it doesn't just mean, hey, I love you because you've been good to me. I love you because you're related to me. or I love you because you're my girlfriend or my boyfriend. It's agape. It's unconditional love. If you look up the word unconditional love in the dictionary, one of the first definitions is love without conditions. Well, that doesn't define it real well unconditional love, love without conditions. Here's what it means, love without strings. It means this, I love you not because of what you've done for me. And that's the kind of love God has for us. And so when Paul says, as a believer now, we don't love just the lovely. We don't love just the people that have done something for us that are easy to love. In fact, sometimes your prayer has to be, oh God, help me see them the way you do. Because I'm really struggling. But let love be, and he gives a specific way, let it be without hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy is almost the exact opposite of unconditional love. Hypocrisy means this. It means you are one way in front of people's face and another way behind their back. I used to do surveys with teenagers, and one of the questions I asked is, what is the thing you like least about your friends? And the number one answer was, I hate when my friends are hypocritical. I said, okay, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? They said, I hate the fact they treat me one way in front of my face and another way behind my back. You're not loving unconditionally if you say to somebody, I love you. But behind their back, you're talking about them. Behind your back, the back, you're ruining their reputation. Behind their back, you're not seeking their best. So Paul says, "This is a new kind of love we're talking about. This is agape love. This is love that only God can give you. In your own strength, apart from Christ, you cannot love this way. You can't fake it till you make it with this. Let love be without hypocrisy. It must be sincere. Then he says, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Literally, detest utterly what is evil. The word evil means hurtful. It means diseased. Why do we need help hurting what's disease or, or hating what is disease? Let me just tell you, the world has tried to flip flop what's good and what's bad. And, and I'll just say, students, I'm old. But I remember when I was young. You ever heard that? You ever heard your parents say that? When I was a teenager, we had to walk uphill both ways to school in the snow. Used to have to carry a potato to keep us warm, and that's what we had for lunch, you know. The big stove in the middle. I didn't experience any of that. I just heard those stories. It wasn't quite that bad for me. But what we smile at today and say it's okay didn't used to be that way. What's happening? Satan is convincing a lot of people that stuff that God says is sin is okay. Here's the scary thing. It's even infiltrated the church. You want to know why the world's so confused about right and wrong? It's because some churches can't get it right. What's the source of truth? God's word. If this says it's wrong, then I don't get to vote on it. I had a lady in my office this summer, issue in her church, and she said, you know, this issue came up in our church, and we just really wanted to take our time praying about it because we didn't want to have a knee jerk reaction. I thought, I can answer that question for you. It's not knee-jerk. We already know the truth. Why? Because it's in God's Word. Abhor what is evil. Let me ask you, how much do you hate sin? And I just got to tell you, if you're like me, you're going to need help with that. You're going to need God to give you a new taste and a distaste for the stuff that's sinful stuff that you allow to go into your eyes, go into your ears, stuff that you allow in your life and even to come out of your life through your mouth or through your actions. God hates sin. And I don't think we get that because we cling to far too much of it. And so Paul says to the church, this young church, this young group of believers, hey, you need to hate what God hates. You need to abhor evil. And rather than just walking away from evil, you need to cling to what is good. The word cling not used often in the New Testament, but it means to glue. It means the same thing when it says a man shall leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife. They become glued together. Inseparable. That's what this is. We ought to hate. We ought to push away from evil things. Stuff that's hurtful and diseased, push away from it and run towards. Cling to stuff that's good. And the key to that is not being conformed to this world. Don't let the world be your barometer or thermometer over what is evil and what's good. Allow God to do that and renew your mind. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now keep in mind, Paul's writing to the church in Rome. He hadn't been there yet. He's on his way. He longs to see them, but he's writing from somewhere else to a church in Rome. He's heard a little bit of feedback come back. And so he's saying to them, love one another. Jesus put it this way. The world will know that you're my followers by your love for one another. You know what speaks the loudest to just normal people? It's not the sign on your church. It's not even the catchy, weak phrase of the week that's down there. It's how you treat other people. And and when Jesus says, they're going to know you're my followers by your love for one another, He's talking about how you treat other believers. We, we struggle with that. I've had youth groups come here, and the youth pastor, I'll ask him, How's church going? He said, Well, we had to call the police last night. I was like, What? Did you get broken into? No, we had a business meeting. Oh, okay. So one guy was seriously telling me, he said, This lady got up and started talking in the church, and the lady stood up on the other side. Are you talking about me? She said, I sure am. I'm talking about you. And they went outside. And these were women. So, you know, no wonder the world looks at the church sometimes and they're real confused. Because they hear things like the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. And they're thinking, they don't have any of it. Why would I want to be like them? So Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. In this letter, up to this point, Paul's only mentioned one time Our love for God. He's mentioned a bunch, God's love for us. But now he turns to our love for one another. If you really are a Christian, it will affect the way you treat other people. In fact, he goes on to say, give preference to one another in honor. You show genuine appreciation and admiration for other people. Give preference. What does that mean? It means think of others as more important than yourself. That's what Jesus did. He talks about in Philippians chapter 2. He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, clung, held on to, but He emptied Himself. Thought of others. And came and literally became obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. If Jesus had only thought about Himself and what He was giving up, He'd have never left heaven. He thought about you. He thought about the glory of God and what the Father was calling Him to and He became obedient. Be fervent in spirit. It literally means to be hot or boil. I see some Christians boiling sometimes but that's not what He's talking about. But He's basically saying there ought to be some oomph in your get up. There ought to be something about you like a steam engine that boils and produces energy for what God wants you to do. Allow the spirit to become fervent. In your life, don't quench it. Take the water and let it boil. Don't use it to douse the flame of what God's trying to do. Rejoice in hope. Be cheerful, happy about the future. We have hope. And life may be horrible for you right now, and it may not get better. But we don't grieve like the world does. We have a hope. And if I die in 10 years, 20 years, or tomorrow, I have a hope of eternity that lasts forever. I'm so glad in heaven we're not going to need calendars and clocks. You're not going to need your iPhone. I don't think there's going to be angry birds in heaven. But I promise you, you're not going to need your phone, you're not going to have to keep up with the schedule. Because it's forever. And folks, we put so much stock in our 70 plus, 80 plus, 90 plus, 100 plus years on earth. And Paul's writing to a group of people hurting, in pain. They were struggling. The first century church went through it. And he's saying rejoice in hope. Persevere in tribulation. And this is more, this persevering is not just put up with it. It really was more of an active, steadfast endurance. And the tribulation they were putting up with was not a paper cut. I don't believe we in this area have experienced persecution like the Christians did in the first century. And may I say, Christians in other parts of the world in this century. For most of us, it hasn't cost us a lot. It may have cost you some friends. It may cost you your job. But in the first century, it could cost you your freedom or your life. And you know what? That's happening around the world today. For the cause of Christ, people have lost their freedom. They've lost their health. They may even lose their life. And so Paul says what? Persevere. Remain under. Remain steadfast in it. In this tribulation. Literally this pressure. Be devoted to prayer. Tribulation will drive you to prayer. Do you think one of the reasons God allows difficult things in your life? I know one of the reasons is that you'd be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But, folks, it also drives us back to Him. When everything's rosy, too often we forget God. When tribulation comes, it brings us back to God, I'm helpless and hopeless without You. So, how do we persevere? We're devoted to prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Literally, share with others in the church. The word saints here is not talking about a football team in Louisiana. And it's not talking about who some think that are like the dear departed. It's That's the word used in the New Testament to talk about believers. If you're a child of God, you're a saint. I know you may not act like it sometimes, but that's who God says you are. And so what does Paul say? Take care of each other. If you have the means to help someone and there's someone with a need, help them. Practice hospitality. The word practice literally means it's an effort word. It means to pursue hospitality. This isn't just talking about hosting dinner parties at the house. In the first century ends, places for people to stay were scarce, expensive, and oftentimes dangerous. Dangerous. And so in the first century, the apostles and those that were doing evangelism, they had to rely on people in the church to take care of them. And Paul's saying that to this church, and I'm saying it to you. Practice hospitality. literally means be fond of strangers. And it's more than just having a family reunion. It's more than just inviting your friends over for a dinner party. It means show hospitality. Be open to folks within the body of Christ. Well, that part was dealing really with how we relate to, brother, to brothers and sisters in the faith, to other Christians. Then he moves on to really everyone. And part of the everyone deals with some people that might have been persecuting. Then he gets real specific at the end about our enemies. Let me move through this passage, verse 14 and following. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind. But associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Paul says, bless those that persecute you. He's not saying bless them out. The word bless means to speak well of, and it really means this it means to pray on their behalf. It's to ask God, God, would you please bless these people? Now think about it. What did Paul used to do? Paul used to persecute Christians. So he had lived both sides of this. He had been the persecutor, now he's the persecutee. He had chased Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. He was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And now that he's come to faith in Christ, he's receiving what he used to dish out. And what does Paul say? Don't curse them, bless them. In fact, the tense of the word when it says bless and do not curse, it is the tense of the word of saying this is already happening, stop it. Stop cursing him. It doesn't just mean they were throwing profanity at him. It basically meant that they were heaping curses on them. And asking God to curse these people. What does Paul say? Stop that. Ask God to bless them. Ask God to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. That will change their life. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. That sounds easy, right? If somebody's laughing and having a good time, can't you join in with that? Sometimes that's hard. You know why? Because sometimes they rejoice and you're thinking, I deserve that. Or you feel like they didn't really deserve that. Or you think, man, I don't have what they've got. But if they're rejoicing, Paul says rejoice. Be cheerful. And weep with those who weep. There's two words for cry in Scripture. One means the silent tears. That's not the word he uses here. This one means wail aloud. Not for show. But our lives ought to be impacted both to the good if somebody's rejoicing it ought to impact. We ought to rejoice with them. We ought to say, I am genuinely happy for you for what's going on in your life. But if somebody's weeping... It ought to break our hearts. One of the stories I read this week about Herod's temple, the second temple in Jerusalem, is at the beginning it had the entrance on the south end had two doors. It had an entrance and an exit. And you walked into the temple area through the entrance. You walked out through the exit with one exception. If you had experienced sorrow, you did the exact opposite. So that the people exiting would rub elbows with you and see your demeanor, see the tears, and experience them with you. So Paul is saying not just rejoicing with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind. Do not be haughty in mind. This is talking about your mind that's being renewed. He said, hey, be together on things. Be united in spirit. Don't have this I'm better than you attitude. Don't be high-minded and have this haughty mindset that basically I'm God's gift to the kingdom. I'm God's gift to the church. But instead of having that high-minded like I'm better than that or better than you, associate with the lowly. Literally the depressed, the humiliated. The word associate means to take off together with them. Spend time with them. Walk through their humility with them. Encourage them. Never pay back evil for evil. That's the natural tendency. And if somebody does something to you, the natural tendency is get even. In fact, one of our presidents put it this way. He said, forgive your enemies, but never forget their names. What does he mean by that? Well, tell them you forgive them, but you better keep a list because the time will come when you can get even. That's not God's way. That's not the way God treated us. That's not the way God's telling us to treat other people. Don't repay... Evil for evil, but respect what is right. And then I love verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you. The sense of what he's saying is it may not be possible, but as far as it depends on you, have you done everything you could to live at peace with other people? People have asked me sometimes, how do I know if I've forgiven somebody? My answer to that is this. If you can treat people as if it never happened, then you've gotten to the point where you've forgiven. We can't do what God does. God says He forgets it and remembers it no more. I still struggle. I can't always forget it. I want to. But I know I've forgiven you when I can treat you as though it never happened. And Paul's simply saying, live at peace with everybody. If there's still an issue between you, make sure it's not your fault. You've done everything you could, including saying, I'm sorry. And you're thinking, I don't have anything to be sorry for. I'm, I'm not the one that did the wrong. But you still ought to be sorry about it. And you don't have to go to them and say, you know, you might not be aware of this, but you offended me. (laughs) No, forgive them without saying that. Treat them like they never did it if they're not even aware they did something. But you ought to be able to go to people and say, you know, I just sense there's something between us and I just want, want to tell you right now, I'm sorry if there's something I've done. I'm sorry. I want this to be right. Would you please forgive me? And you know what? They may look at you and say no but as far as it depends on you, you've done what God asked you to do. Last things deals with our enemies. I'm going to go quickly. Relating to enemies. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, quoting from Proverbs, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. What's Paul saying? There's going to be some people in life that are your your adversary. They're your enemy. How do we as Christians respond to people who hate us? Well, don't take your own revenge. Human tendency is get even to take revenge. No. God has said, I'll pay back. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You know something? You may have to deal with the fact that you don't see it in this life. God may have already begun revenge. Don't get in the way of it. Stay out of his way. It's not our job to pay back evil for evil. In fact, he said, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. The word hungry literally means to famish. It means your enemy is starving. And God's saying, nourish them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. By so doing, you will heat burning coals on their head. And some of you are thinking, yeah, finally! <laughs> I'm going to put my foot on their throat. Bring me the coals. That's not what it's talking about. Scholars differ over the exact meaning here, but nobody believes it means we're going to kill our enemy with burning coals. We do know there was an Egyptian custom. One of the ways they would show repentance and show sorrow is they would take an urn that would carry coals and they carry it around on their head to show everybody, I'm sorry for what I did. And bottom line, what you're doing by showing your enemy God's love is hopefully you're turning your enemy into a friend. And the last thing he says is, don't be overcome by evil. The word overcome means to subdue. It literally means evil is chasing you. Don't allow it to overcome you. Instead, turn the tables. Overcome evil with good. He's talking about evil that may be done to you by others, but there's also evil in the way we respond to others. Don't get caught up in this world system and respond the way the world does. Respond the way God does. That was about 25 things Paul told us to do. And some of you are thinking, I couldn't write that fast. We'll go back to the first one. If all you can remember is one, love unconditionally, sincerely without hypocrisy. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, God, we read hear this message and just recognize that we are unable in our own strength we're going to do what the world does but you've called us lord to be different in fact god you've taken up residence in our life through the person of the holy spirit and you're convicting us that responding the way we used to is not right god help us to love the way you do Because, God, apart from you, we'd be just like them. So, God, allow us to show them the love of Jesus Christ. And, God, it's my prayer that some of them, because of what they see in us, would come to faith in Jesus themselves. God, help us to live this this week, not on our strength but in yours, as we surrender our lives to you. We pray this in Christ's name.